Welcome to Tactical Permaculture. I've worked on projects ranging from the poorest to richest clients, from inner cities to suburbs to farmlands to remote wilderness, from the eco-war front lines to celebrity backyards. In over 25 years of service to the earth and the community of life, I've learned that in the fight for sustainable survival, growing is half the battle. Please go to tacticalpermaculture.com to read my blog, watch my videos, view my photos, access web applications, and click on the join membership link to access exclusive features. August 11th, 2023, episode number 77. This is more of a practical update, uh, just recent experiences trying to find a balance and live in harmony with these um, morning visitations that have been going on for the last uh, probably a few weeks now, at least probably three weeks, where consistently every morning, basically from about sunrise until about um, 11-ish, when it starts to get even too hot for them, um, they've I think up to, I've heard up, I've seen and heard up to about four of them at a time. And they're larger and thinner non-wasp, um, which if I'm not, and I'm not a, I am not a, uh, a bee expert by any means. And I have not yet had the, uh, the long awaited experience of, of, um, keeping bees for honey uh but i have been a a very um pro bee gardener who is always trying to provide uh means for them to have access to water and certainly plenty of different types of flowers and give them plenty of uh of peace and freedom to operate within favoring their right of way over mine uh, very often. And so there's some background bits that I will, I'll share along the way, but (laughs) this is a very interesting relationship now because they've become this, this sort of pack of bees have become, um, Yeah, the mo- one of the most significant recurring interactions with wildlife that I'm that I've had since I've been out here over t- whatever two and a half years now, and uh, they they they've actually um, almost upstaged the red ants as far as how much real estate they consume in my in my mind about what I got to do to respect them and stay out of their way and not not get attacked by them um I say red or I say red ants but they're actually I believe seed harvester ants that there's some nuance there but they bite they sting they they do both and they and it's and it's relentless and the only I mean it, the only way it could be much worse is if they were 
any more organized than they are um, as far as uh, just attack formations and 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 kind of um, I mean I know I know that they're able to they're able to assemble based on all the nuance of their their, their means of communication um, but they see they seem to be more organized around around uh, attacking any any potential food sources than attacking me if I end up having to um, defend myself against one of them um, though I have noticed at times what I would what I would interpret as a um, a, a mass response to distress sing- signals when I've had to defend myself against one of the ants, and then and then observe mobilizations um, that shortly thereafter in my direction. And uh, but I'm not a I'm not an I'm not an entomologist. I don't study ants. I don't know exactly whether or not that that would have been coincidence or or paranoia or or totally accurate, but point being the 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 amount of strikes against me that have landed and been successful the majority of them have been the ants and i've i've had to there's certain circumstances where i cannot avoid being in contact with them certain circumstances where i i can mitigate contact and uh generally over the over the cycle of seasons when they're out and about, which is mostly during the warmer months and not the colder months, they've got they've got a few choice opportunities to to really get at me real good. Um, but as I've as I've learned to adapt over time, I've 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 just been uh, getting better and better at at escape and evasion and just minimizing my attack surface and whatnot so i I feel pretty pretty good about that balance so this wild card factor of having these luckily non-wasp they're not they're not uh hornets or yellow jackets that have the capacity to sting individually to sting repeatedly without exhausting their ability to sting which is the opposite for the honeybees and the bumblebees which if i if my vague studies serve me well in this moment yeah i'm sure there's all kinds of, i mean i know I've, I've read about tiny bees i've read about you know there's bees that burrow in the ground there's bees that build hives there's obviously honeybees there's non-honeybees that are similar and i i I, uh so yeah please correct me if i'm wrong and forgive me if you if i'm um if i'm making mistakes here but i think what seems to be the the most important distinction is to be able to identify the doler hairy the duller yellowed hairier bumble and honeybees as broad categories separate from the broad categories of yellow jackets and hornets which are considered both considered wasps 
I'm not reading this from notes. I'm just trying to remember this. So hopefully this is correct. But basically, in terms of mitigating attacks and situational awareness, the what seems to be the rule of thumb is to be able to identify as far of a distance as you possibly can before it's too late the difference between the brightness of the yellow and the slenderness and shapes of the bodies of the of the wasps versus the bees uh or the uh yeah i, I i'm not I, I may be i may be uh making a a mess out of the the taxonomy here but hairy uh hairy and dull yellow versus versus shiny not hairy and bright yellow those are the things that i'm kind of training myself to look out for so so far nothing wasp-like has appeared to me out here and very very rarely but once in a great while over these last yeah two and a half years would it just a random a random bee would show up if there was ever water accessible to it um which is rare as far as if i spill something or, or leave something out but i wouldn't normally see them certainly never seen a swarm go by but but I, but I was thrilled just to know that. Well, if I, if if one can be attracted, then more can be attracted, and even if they're not honeybees, they're still whatever they are. As long as they're not, I mean, I like to be a friend to all life and acknowledge the role of every every organism in the ecosystem, and try to not be play favorites but i would have to say that uh yeah the certainly being alone and being at high risk of the worst possible outcomes of a medical emergency given the remoteness and the and the aloneness I, i'm going to pray that that the pests that i have to learn to live in balance with are not the worst of the worst and that they're and that the risk is manageable even if they're not manageable so ants and scorpions black widows and now all these what seem to be the more benign of potential bee threat vectors so they've been few and far between just random one-off visits but then <laughs> what happened was uh i had a curious george moment if you know what I mean by that, just if, if you don't know what Curious George is or who Curious George is, then it's basically a the antics of a um, curious monkey that gets himself into into trouble just by virtue of being uh, being brought into a city and sort of living a city life where funny city things happen because there's so many hazards and so many mishaps that can occur uh in the in the, just the unmitigated disaster the disaster disaster waiting to happen zone that cities are i think that's kind of the subtle subversive message if i dare ex extrapolate one 
But uh, when I say a curious George moment, it's it's one of those things like leaving the faucet, leaving the bath, filling the overfilling the bath because you were you you weren't paying attention or burning food on the stove or uh, leaving the hose out and on in the garden all night and flooding the neighbors. I mean, those these are all curious George type things. So for me, what it was was that uh, I did leave a a uh, valve open to what I do is incrementally add water to the fish pond so that they have an adequate amount of somewhat oxygenated and fresh water uh, being resupplied because of the evaporation rate this time of year is so high that if I turn my back on it sometimes even for a day they can be almost all. Um, I, I would I would be able to see landforms at the lower at the lowest point of the of the of the the water tank the galvanized tank that I'm doing the aquaculture in, and that's bad because I'm on extreme water budget rain that I thought would come or was planning. I guess. Um, yeah, financial collapse and then and then climate collapse. A lot of my crops have died and had to be scaled back, and uh, and then now the survive the, the 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 struggle to survive is me and the fish trying to survive until until the sun angle changes to where the evaporation rate drops off drastically and I'm not sweating out all my water and the fish aren't losing all the water that they're trying to survive in on a daily basis. So between keeping myself alive and keeping the water level adequate for them, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a razor's edge of survival for both of us. But then I realized that I was... I was cutting it too close for them and I had a very shocking revelation that one day where I realized I can't even turn my back on this for a day. So I, I decided I better just accept that. I mean, here's the trade-off. If I'm storing water in a way where it doesn't evaporate, how much at a time do I want to surrender to extreme rapid evaporation to buffer the fish versus keeping it versus metering it out as slowly as possible maintaining the lowest minimum survivable water level just so that I'm probably well yeah it's I don't know what the math is I don't know I you know I have to do the scientific study to get it perfectly understood but but let's just say by by filling it in smaller amounts more often versus in larger amounts less often i'm i'm pre preserving some percentage at some ratio of water that is not being frivolously evaporated so the trade-off is the amount of vigilance that's required not then the trade-off is but yes but yes you may be saving some water but by doing that you're also 
putting the fishes, all of the fishes' lives at great risk. So at a certain point, I realized I was pushing it too far. None of them were dead, and there's plenty of them in there. I don't even know how many that uh, I see that I see them active. Um, I don't know how many. I I wouldn't be able to count them, but it's not a it's not a handful, and it's not a million, but the population is is thriving and it has throughout the seasons and i'm very happy about that and it's zero maintenance other than just not letting it dry out they don't need to be fed uh they eat mosquito larvae if it ever appears and they thrive on algae and other thing other all types of bottom feeder fodder for them in a in just a whatever approximately 200 gallon stock tank that I grow island gardens in, in more in more uh, mild seasons, and I, I use that fertigated water to irrigate other uh, other garden uh, pots out uh, in in the vicinity within this dome situation. So I call it the bonsai food forest dome. But that tank, it grows the fish, the fish add nutrient to the water, they're self-sufficient and require no inputs other than water. And then the trade-off is that I get nutrient-rich, living, clean, filtered water that's a million times safer to put on plants or to, to irrigate plants with and a million times more nutrient-dense and therefore more production happens and more plant health, disease resistance, etc. Um, and it's the the, the perfect low-tech type of aqua aquaculture and not hydroponics or aquaponics rather in the sense that there's no need for aeration there's no need for filtration there's no need for pumps there's no single points of failure and there's not a lot of plastic and glue and pvc and things that can go wrong uh in terms of the health of the ecosystem mass sudden fish die off or just to me the absurdity personally and no offense if you're a big aquaponics person but i look at that and i go that's some frankenstein over engineered i'm trying to get back to nature and i'm trying to get back to simplicity so why not just put the growing put the just do chanapa style island gardens inside of a inside of a a, a fully functional un segregated fully integrated and not disintegrated and with no electronics and no pipes and prosthesis and pumps just a literally a a choosing the right profile of fish and plants and the right ratio of organic versus inorganic growing media to grow plants in in that what they call the pond builders, the actual pond professionals, they call it an ecosystem pond. And what they mean by that, which is kind of a, it's an insider industry term and it doesn't really compute well outside of the industry because there is nothing, I mean, everything is an ecosystem. Even if you, even if you chlorinate it, it's still an ecosystem of organisms continually growing and fighting and adapting against being poisoned by whatever chemicals we try to poison with. There's really very few scientific laboratory environments that 
that can be called completely that can be considered completely uh, uh, absent of any form of the interactions of life. But when they say ecosystem pond, they don't mean out of an ecology textbook ecosystem pond. They mean that it doesn't have interventions like chemicals and and uh, and filters and pumps or aeration. That it just is basically, in a more derogatory sense, what you would call a stagnant, what sometimes would be called a stagnant body of water or stagnant pond. But I like I like the more the more uh, uh, forgiving term the ecosystem pond. But what what I learned in my early days of experimenting with chinapas was that you kill the fish, you create a toxic anaerobic environment that consumes where the that where the anaerobic uh, breakdown process of organic material underwater. Um, it consumes all the oxygen, robs the fish of oxygen, forces causes them to die, and then creates this the the the, uh, the bog of eternal stench effect. And so, after an epic failure or partial failure of having gotten that ratio of the growing media to be planting things in these island gardens, where you could have all your veggies and herbs and fruits and basically your whole kitchen garden and perennials and whatever else uh, is appropriate given the scale can be grown in some form of a basket or pot or I've used bamboo circles bamboo circles of bamboo poles lined with burlap filled with growing media I've used uh, clay pots even sad to say at times uh, temporarily plastic pots but uh, point being you can I guess also at a tiny scale with nurseries I've even used soup cans which eventually will corrode but but anything that will hold growing media meaning something to hold the roots in place the nutrient effect is happening wicking through and up to the gradient of moisture saturation into the island where the island is an island is obviously partially submerged and partially above water and it's it's in that above water zone that has a gradient of moisture where you're planting into with what you would plant into a dry bed so it could be whatever greens tomatoes anything yeah anything you would grow normally the difference is Rather than watering it for above, from above, the roots are basically always having access like a straw to whatever amount of moisture they want. If they want to grow all the way into the water, they're able to do so. If they want to grow an inch above the water line and just be in that zone of saturation or partial saturation within that gradient, they're free, they're free to do so. So just like air pruning... They can moisture prune if that's if that's acceptable way to frame it um, to their heart's desire, and then they never have a moment of being stressed for lack of water between between uh, drip irrigation or overhand watering or whatever 
whatever you may be doing that's not so-called sub-irrigation, which a chinampa system or island gardening system is one form of. So in my early stage experiments, I failed at getting that ratio of inorganic to organic growing media right. And for example, composted manure as a growing media is great when it's air, fully aerated and mostly dry and only partially wet when during cycles of being pulsed through watering and rain. But if, if that, but if that material is underwater and trying to be the growing medium in an island garden system of sorts, then what happens is that it's an overload of organic material in the aquatic ecosystem. It, uh, it consumes that, that anaerobic breakdown process, consumes the oxygen and creates toxic and foul smelling outputs of just the biology the ecology has created and then you end up with this this noxious bog and there is life in it but it's not the life your plants die that you try to plant in the islands the fish die and what remains is stuff you would not want to eat it's the most repulsive smelling life that there is and even if you have a healthy aquatic ecosystem that's highly aerated even with pumps and aeration machines and everything still that muck at the base that's where that layer of a very small a much smaller scale anaerobic activity is happening and when you clean a pond or you cycle it through or flush it out so you can harvest that muck which i've done then you then you get that potent nasty bog of eternal stench but that's something that is normally or or properly contained at a certain scale at a certain level to a limited degree but then just imagine that if you overdo the organic material then the whole thing turns into that basically um into that that type of ecology so it's a disaster so that happened to me one time i learned my lesson i went back to the drawing board and i and i got uh from um, from one of the most uh, prominent suppliers of water gardening supplies in Southern California, which I've been loyal to for many years now, over 10 years now. Um, I, re- I referred to them because I remember seeing the way they do it, the way they have their whole indoor and outdoor or semi-outdoor and fully outdoor uh, showroom of all of their aquatic plants that they sell and that they've got this, I don't know, couple acre epic water garden theme park basically and uh, they sell all kinds of fish all kinds of plants all kinds of equipment everything you could ever want pretty much um one time i went through and said can you show me everything here that is potentially at human edible and um and and it was surprising yeah there's there's quite a number of things that we that are ornamental that are edible we don't think about but um but yeah i've 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 gone on shopping sprees there many times and they're my go-to for just even getting the most basic systems up and running um but because i know that they would have they probably have half as many of these maybe 
let's just say eight to ten feet long, maybe four to five feet wide, one foot deep, EDPM pond liner lined um, water garden um, sort of this layout of these of these of of uh, of however many however many of these different approximate less about approximately the size but some of them have fountains some of them have pumps and to showcase different systems um but generally i mean they all have mosquito fish in them um but but i would say about half of them no no pumps no aeration just potted plants water and uh and the, and the mosquito fish and and then of course other forms of all kinds of microscopic life but and also um duckweed and azola and other other kind of floating plants between the potted plants that they sell and they also will sell you by the handful duckweed and azola which is great but because i knew i, I, I was haunted by the memory that that they were able to pull that off, that this is not asking too much. And there were people in the permaculture movement who said it can't be done, that you have to have these prosthesis uh, materials. Um, you can't, that the, 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 you, the, you will have, uh, yeah, you'll have the problems that I, that I had unless you have pumps and aeration. But I was, I was convinced otherwise and I knew that they had been that they do it, and it's just fine, and it's not a nuisance, and it's not a mosquito pit, and they're a business with all kinds of liability and insurance, and customers rolling through every day, year round. They know what they're doing; they're the pros. So, what was the secret? And the the the, the key factor. What they said to me is that uh, if you have a a certain percentage of water filtering oxygenating floating plants like water hyacinth water lettuce for example um, i'm not gonna cite the exact number because i think it's going to vary based on climate and whatnot and i don't want to be i don't want to be giving aquaculture advice uh without a without a, a license or a lawyer at this point um but i will say that uh if the if, yeah there's the, the the main consideration is keeping the fish alive if you're not going to have pumps and aeration choosing the right fish that can survive in in low oxygen um having plants that bring that introduce oxygen to the water and filter the water as they as they as they do their thing, uh, living in the water, uh, providing those functions amongst other things, obviously habitat and playground for the fish as well, uh, and many other many other functions. But but the assemblage is to have a good filtering, oxygenating fish feeding fish habitat, uh, enhancing. Um, floating plants along with the fish and then most importantly to be having the submerged portion of the growing media for the potted plants that are the islands within the system for that to just be dead sand or 
some kind of dead growing media that has no more that has no organic matter that can possibly be basically underwater biodegraded and, and composted to where it's going to consume oxygen in that process of of um, decomposition that but that doesn't mean that you can't have the most rich organic matter above the water line because it's as long as that that filter that that sand buffer, I, I, there's a there's a picture of it that I that I I recently came across that I have where it shows me taking a seedling out of one of my mini chinampa nursery trays, where I'm taking a seedling out of a pot, and basically just the the time that that pot was underwater and the just the way that the sand and the sand layer and the and the compost layer just kind of held together like a parfait and then the roots held it together of whatever the plant was in that when I took the cup off and I took it out of that tray that was let's say it's a like a, a, a five inch tall tray of whatever or whatever length and width but it's five inches tall approximately and then I would fill that about a third to halfway with water keep it about that level and then that would allow me, that would allow for that sub-irrigation island garden chinampa effect to occur for starting plants in the nursery, and that's when it's almost most critical because they're most subject to be to be dried out at that early stage, certainly in the warmer months. So that system worked very well, and then I would be able to harvest and prick out and plant out those seedlings as they would grow and one time I took a picture that showed yeah that parfait that parfait looking effect of there being this this uh half of the cup being being uh wet sand and the other half being wet compost but that wet sand not being penetrated by or contaminated by like they they weren't all mixed up and mushed up and mixed together so that the organic material would leach into the actual basin of the water so the water would stay clear because it was only in contact with the sand and the sand was allowing the moisture to wick upwards but it was preventing the the partic particulate material of the organic matter to actually percolate into the water supply and start to rot in, in underwater and therefore create that flip the balance of oxygenate oxygenation and turn it into an anaerobic bog so that has that was the secret that i learned from them and that i implemented and and then you will you, you, on my website now that whole story it doesn't show where it where it went horribly wrong but it shows the whole process and and uh and so it's um i'm going to explain it in the text on that on that post but it's going to be the a whole series of photos showing the the whole process but um but the, the 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 before and after was that once we optimized that and did it correctly and we replaced the um submerged organic material with submerged inorganic material essentially just dry or was dry baked non-living dirt with, with a high sand content um, 
then it worked like a charm and it and it just blew up uh in, in productivity and it was un unbelievable never seen anything like it in my life and it proves the theory and the concept um but i gave this whole tangent in the context of this this b story because uh the uh, the i'm haunted by those memories and seeing seeing this razor's edge of keeping the fish barely alive in this scorching hottest year on record hottest summer on record cycle where all i can do is try to keep myself alive keep the fish alive and the only thing the only flora that i'm growing are in my fermentation jars um with uh with wine and brine and uh and i'm okay with that this is the first time out here even that i haven't had anything green growing outside during the summer uh, before i would have kept something going um but yeah between financial and climate collapses I have to stretch this budget a long way and, and it's stretched very thin over time. But because I know the perils of letting the water get too low and that ratio of rotting organic material versus plenty of water that's got gradients of contact with the air and with the wind and just the normal stirring up of oxygenation through wind uh turbulence on the surface and whatnot there's all kinds of effects happening but i don't want this fish to struggle i certainly don't want him to die and so i had to have my so the curious george moment was that i was that i was generous finally with letting that valve stay open from that enclosed water tank so that so that I could let the, the stock tank water level go up much higher and just say, yeah, I know I'm going to lose a lot of it to evaporation, but better to, better to have to, basically what it meant is that I can, I have to stop growing. I have to stop growing any, any, any crops. I've got to just barely keep the fish alive. And I've just got to sacrifice that water that could have gone to growing crops to evaporation just to, just to guarantee that I don't let the fish die because of one day going by that's a little bit, a couple degrees hotter and it just wipes out and it, it just evaporates them down to, down to the, to the ground. And, and that would be too heartbreaking. I would, I would, that would be, I, I can't imagine how it would feel. I, I, I don't even want to, have to think about it. So, so I let that valve go and I actually, I actually, uh, I, 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 uh, I left it open and went to sleep and woke up the next day. And it was literally, luckily, it was the perfect, the height of where the, the silicone half inch tubing coming off of the water tank, the height of it going into the two foot hall, two foot high stock tank ended up being literally at basically the perfect level to where it filled, they almost filled it up, almost filled it up, this six foot wide, six foot long, two foot tall, two foot wide galvanized stock tank. Leaving that valve open overnight, it, 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 it ran out, it ran down to the, to the level 
that was where the where the uh, that tubing was resting about two feet up. So it left about two feet of water in that in that storage tank. So I didn't lose any water as far as it overflowing and being lost. And and it, it just it just put in more than I intended to. I would I would have put in less than half that much if I was paying proper attention. But at least negligence. I got I I got lucky with this <laughs> with negligence in the opposite direction. Not too little water, but too much water. And you know what? It bought the time. It bought a lot of time for the fish. I don't know how long. At least it lasted a month before it got before I had to start adding start cycling more water back in um but but the funny thing was and this is where it turns into this permaculture um thriller comedy of errors whatever is uh never before in this scorching heat had there been that much of an abundance of water there had always been quite a bit less. And, and, and then all of this year up until that point, uh, even when it was totally full, there were no bees there there were no bees that were being attracted to it in the cooler months when it was mostly full. Um I suppose because of just their 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 seasonal cycles. I don't I don't I haven't learned them yet, I don't know much about them yet, I haven't fully identified them yet. But guess what happened within a day of that mishap of it being I wouldn't say overfilled but it being topped off more than I intended it to I did not expect this random side effect was that that much of a signature of water on the landscape in this baking desert it, it became an attraction point for bees which I'm which I, I normally favor that. I normally think that's great. And I do, in my heart of hearts, think it's great no matter what. And eventually I will be building such an epic oasis that there will be a bee population to keep a reserve for the whole world based out of my one property. That's the goal, okay? That's how much I love bees and how much I want to build homes for them and accommodate them. But right now, uh, it, it's uh, trying to do everything one step at a time, but all, all that water supply available to them attracted them, and then literally now it's been however many weeks, yeah, probably over a month, that every single morning from the moment the sun comes up till when it gets too hot around 11 a.m., where they have to go back to probably... If they are ground dwellers, they're, they're, I, must, I don't see them go back to a hive. I know they're, they're right under me or right on top of me. They're not far wherever they're posting up when they need to be in the shade and overnight when it cools down. But for those few hours in the morning, they've been terrorizing me nonstop. And I don't know why, because I went... To, I took extra measures to make sure they had a corridor to get from the outside secure perimeter of that dome, which is secured by quarter-inch hardware cloth from top to bottom, wrapped around the whole dome, so that rodents and lizards and scorpions and whatnot don't get in there. Um, and I was, I was, 
I had noticed in other times, previous times, when they would show up before randomly, I was really bummed out. I'm like, man, I wish that they could fit through those that quarter-inch mesh. Uh, maybe I should eventually figure out a way to create a B port for them to get into the dome mesh that would basically by design not allow rodents to they would slip off of it trying to get in so basically i did eventually build that to where there's basically a a tube with a small a small terminates in a small entry and exit point where bees can go in and out and i've seen them use it so they have no reason now that i've given them that corridor to even have to squeeze through the quarter inch mesh though i'm thrilled to say that i've seen them do it so i know it's possible and i'm excited about that because that means that i haven't just been um driving them crazy by teasing them with a with the water supply that they can't access i went ahead and made sure guaranteed they had access by building access for them specifically but then i also know that they didn't even need that technically because they're able to squeeze through it however they've got they've got at least those two options so i figured that they would not need to bother me at all because they would be thrilled to have full access to that water and i also know that they really need little landing pads because they can't just hover and drink very well they need to be able to be able they need to be able to be to be secure with their footing to be able to comfortably drink and i've seen that work in a number of ways and so there's enough material in that ecosystem now for them to be able to basically just post up on this harbor of bamboo that's in there basically uh and and that's that should work fine for them and i i know they go in and out of there so it seems like it's fine for them but then for some reason, in addition to that, they like to just terrorize me and and just um, and ravage me uh, <laughs> nonstop. And certainly, if I'm doing anything like drinking tea or water or pouring tea or water or interacting with my water supply, where I have to replenish it and filter it every day, and I have to do it when it's light because of scorpions, and I have to do it. In the morning because it's too hot and I'll, I'll die otherwise so my my pattern of life intersects with their pattern pattern of life and they can't get enough of me so i'm doing this kung fu dance not swatting at them but just doing chops and and kicks and jumps and yeah between it looks like i'm doing I'm doing kung fu fighting, hula hooping, and I don't know what else, disco dancing to try to, when they're in my field, make sure my eye protection is tight, make sure my shirt is tucked in, and I even sewed up the base of my shorts so that they wouldn't be able to fly up where the sun don't shine. And uh, I think I've only gotten stung once, and I don't want them to sting me because that's not good. It's... Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a lose lose if 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 a non wasp stings stings me, I don't want the, I don't want them to waste their sting around me. There's no need for it. I'm not hostile to them, not threatening them. I'm providing for them, and I hope they hear me pleading, pleading uh, in this way. But you know what? It doesn't really work that way. They get attracted to whatever they get attracted to, and I imagine it's just basically a 
the moisture signature that is emitting from my skin that's invisible but that they sense and that, that attracts them and it stands out in the desert and then anything obviously that shines though whatever it is I don't know all about how they perceive it but they're all over my business all all morning every morning and then they've even started to to creep into my my office which is porous uh, by design at which point I've had to have a more robust set of actual hardcore protective goggles just on hand ready to slap on because it's a little darker in there and I can't move around hardly at all and to me the worst I don't even want to say it but there's only a few things that could happen to me that would be a medical emergency to where I would have to tap out and at great expense crippling just totally totally catastrophic uh irreparable financial damage medical emergency tap out i've got to avoid that so i wear eye protection at, at any time where i'm where i'm out basically outdoors and that's also per the advice of the survival medicine doom and bloom show with uh doc bones and nurse amy where he would say and has said talking about eye protection and being outdoors if you're outside and he's what yeah whether it's eye protection that you would use if you were using a a saw you're going to use eye protection or if it's shade uh uv sun uh sunglasses that's a form of eye protection but obviously better to to do both so yeah i've got i've got the clear eye protection i've got the the sunshade eye protection but basically i'm always wearing eye protection for for a lot of reasons um but that has become the most acute now is just that <laughs> it's like sting me anywhere but a couple of places because there is one place where if i get injured i can't just be like oh i'm just gonna write it out and you know tough it out that would be so foolish and negligent that I I could never be taken seriously or forgive myself and I would lose all my credibility. Yeah, if I if I get injured in certain really dumb ways that were preventable then I lose I lose all credibility. So I've got to risk mitigate as much as possible. So for me this dances with bees phenomenon for now it's a growing pain because eventually it won't be such a medical financial um the high stakes game meaning i if i'm better if i'm better off financially i won't be so risk averse i can be a little more risk tolerant the way I would normally be not that I wouldn't wear eye protection but I would be you know if I have to if I have to get rushed to the hospital it's not going to break the break the bank at that point then I can be a little bit more relaxed but until then I've got to be on high alert and in extreme risk averse mode <laughs> so even the most benign thing which is these bees that probably just whatever they're they're not aggressively attacking me they're not ganging up on me 
they're just very curious and very up in my business and get very close but they when I set my boundaries they will respect them for about five seconds and then they'll come back and test them again but I'm not trying to swat at them I'm not trying to hurt them I'm just trying to preemptively create this sort of magical magical perimeter that they will sense the force of airflow of me just chopping the air in front of me and that that whatever it's visual or the airflow fluctuation whatever it is it's it's not taken as such a threat that they have to that they have to sting in response it's just something that dissuades them and they go away but it's chronic and consistent and it's every few seconds for all those hours of the morning and and it's made it's got to the point where i can't listen to anything i listen to on earbuds music shows i gotta i it's it's a form of meditation it's a form of mindfulness practice because i can't i can't disable my my uh, ability to perceive the distance of their presence certainly when i'm in my office i've got to know the difference between them being outside and far away outside and approaching outside and right up on the perimeter and then ultimately inside i've got to be able to be acutely aware of all of that and i almost have to drop everything and do it so if anyone has a hard time shutting their mind off there's now i'm going to say there's no no better way to get your to turn your thinker off and get into your body and get into your primal mode and call it meditation if you want um you got to remain calm you can't panic so there's that aspect of controlled breathing and having your wits about you but yeah talk about being you know in the zone and being in the moment um i mean if it was wasps i would i would have to i don't know what i would do i would be in really serious trouble um i would probably and well one of my i guess the ultimate backup plan is that is that I would go into the cab of a truck, hopefully without them close enough tailgating in into the into the door. But I that that but I have uh, removed obstacles, so it would be as smooth as as possible of a of a uh, emergency evac to seek shelter in the truck. The problem is, yeah, if if uh, if they're persistent. I I have to hope that they're going to not be persistent once it starts getting hotter because if because I will just cook in there and die if I have to hide out in there but luckily it hasn't been a swarm it's been no more than a maximum of four at a time and uh so far yes they've been very persistent and very curious and very up in my business but they I I may may have only been stung once and it wasn't that bad and now now that the sun is starting to come up you might actually hear them, but uh, but but probably not. It's still pretty dark. Um, but I use this moment of uh, of opportunity, of the best temperature of the twenty four hour cycle. It's now five twenty seven a.m. as I'm wrapping this up, which means I started at about four thirty, and uh, yeah, I was able to have my wits about me before the sun comes up and starts baking me senseless and uh shout out to the daily show from the new york times um that i listen to that 
literally daily and they did the best so far uh very very comprehensive yet very uh comprehensible uh uh interview discussion about the effects of heat on the workforce and the economy and so half the show was it was talking about being able to understand the scope and the impact of of different forms of heat illness and this and climate crisis induced heat illness on the economy a lot of really solid metrics on that so it was super fascinating that first half of the show and on the second half of the show basically totally reaffirmed and substantiated all of my loose claims that I made on a recent show all about heat syncope and the the blood uh, blood pressure blood volume um capillary uh heat uh dissipation effects all the things that I was fumbling through in my personal experience and research it was far better explained and it all lined up and matched and and validated what I said so I was very pleased to know that I did a decent job and that I can refer to that episode of the daily as an even better reference point so I'm doing that now and that so that was whatever it was a few days ago um, that that was up so I encourage checking that out but one of the stats that was very useful and I'm sure this is you know some in some sense a guesstimate but what they <laughs> it was very affirmative for me to forgive myself for being so debilitated by the heat because they said that uh yeah just to get an idea of how much of how how far behind OSHA for example is on regulating workplace temperatures because most industrial warehouses were built before the climate crisis and therefore had no forethought about how costly it would be to retrofit with air conditioning ability so most people don't work outside most people work inside and a huge percentage of those people work in conditions that are impossible to climate control and that's because of a of a of a more blissfully ignorant pre climate crisis uh era of uh, industrial architecture and design so now we have plenty of data to understand what the effects of unmitigated heat are on people who have no way to escape from it and still have to do their jobs and uh great detail has gone into in that episode talking about all the different nuances and effects um but the takeaway for now is that they said that uh that that rule of thumb is that uh at 90 degrees fahrenheit the productive capacity of any given worker is going to drop by 25% okay and then at 100 degrees fahrenheit the productive capacity of any given worker is going to drop by 70%. So I have been surviving at up to 125 degrees for big chunks of each of the days from July through now starting to uh mitigate finally in early August to between 105 115 versus 115 to 
for about a month leading up. So that means that based on whatever math that scale is on, to go in 10 degrees from 90 to 100 and go from that being a 25% productivity loss to a 70%, that means at 125 degrees on that scale, my productivity is 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 probably like 500% negative. And that's not that's not it's obviously not rational humanly possible it would make no sense but i would have to say that uh, yeah i'm not only incapacitated 100% incapacitated i'm like 500% incapacitated and have been and uh, i've got atrophy to deal with and all kind i mean all kinds of tore up is what this does to me uh psychologically and physically at every at every, at every level um, but this is my third rodeo and, and I'm, even though it's gotten worse in terms of temperature, my strategies of adapting have improved. And so this is, um, <laughs> there've been some, there've been some moments that have been the most psychologically, um, the, the, mo the most psychologically difficult, uh, but physically my strategies of mitigation have been more effective this year than in previous years and not without being more expensive or more high tech they're they're still simple and still low cost and still low tech but they're they're optimized um to to a, a significant degree to where my my general comfort level my general um, baseline, uh, what would you call it? Um, uh, vitals. My vitals are doing okay, better than they had in previous years in terms of electrolytes and hydration and just um, urination and bowel movements and every, yeah, all the metrics that matter. Um, I don't have all the equipment to measure it. I just have <laughs> the experience of what happens when when any of these things get too far out of whack and then I experience the the sort of uh, incipient disease stages until I correct it and I've and I've had a number of them over the last couple of years but this this year I've I've been able to stave them off through better better mitigation efforts so with that said I don't know how long this, these bees are going to be coming around doing this stuff, doing their thing, but uh, I, have the, I have the tools, techniques, and procedures to risk mitigate. I have the personal protective equipment, and it's probably a net benefit that they have me do a little bit of calisthenics in the morning so that I don't completely atrophy from lack of movement and that I get a little bit of a warm-up and I do stretch and I do a bit of a bit of maintenance walking while I can just to keep some amount of muscle mass almost like an astronaut <laughs> just starting to atrophy immediately from you know lack of a lack of gravity uh, it's a similar situation out here I've, I'm experiencing horrific effects of different types of atrophy and uh, so 
thank you to the bees for helping me fight the atrophy by surviving their yeah their 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 dance floor invitation and uh someday I'll have more help and more finances and we can grow together cheers <laughs>